Well, it's not fine because what you didn't realize is you typed in the name of the company with an extra S at the end and you didn't know it. That page that you went to was created by a target somewhere and this is a target site which what's happened now is they didn't want your login information they wanted you to go to that domain because now they have a direct infiltration into your system to prepare guards for work in the industry we're not putting any effort into training or any or any money we're not paying them appropriately and then surprise surprise when the guard doesn't write a report then we're angry why would we be angry that they're doing exactly what we asked them to do which is nothing all that and more in this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Sandra Stibberts is the owner and president of Camelot Investigations. She specializes in intellectual property and international financial fraud investigations, pen testing, and vulnerability assessments. She's also past chair of the ASIS International Investigations Council. Sandra, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today. We're going to talk about intellectual property protection. You're with CamelotInvestigations.com. You've been doing this a long time. It's a big topic. There's a lot of things to define intellectual property. But give me, just give us a real quick definition of what that is. Intellectual property is the property that belongs to your company, your industry, whatever business you're in. And the unfortunate thing about it becoming such a big topic is because those from countries like China, they're trying to steal our intellectual property, our trade secrets, whether it's in our government or in our businesses. And so having covering our bases on intellectual property and our ownership of our own product is going to be the key on everything. And this has been going on a long, long time. We, we, it's kind of come to the, the height of attention in the news, but the Chinese government, I'm not going to say people, but the government has been doing this for many, many years. Yeah, they have. And, you know, it's it's kind of disturbing when you look at it, because when I started getting into the intellectual property piece of it, it was before we were really working so hard on the Internet. But the actual products themselves, like retail, how the Chinese were able to take our retail products, such as, you know, Gucci bags or coach bags or even, you know, some of the, the brands in the sporting industry, the T-shirts and shoes, all of a sudden they were were creating the exact same product and it was identical and then bringing it and shipping it over here and selling it on the streets, which then was absolutely destructive to our businesses because they can't keep up with the $20 bag off the street when they're having to try and sell their own products, which made all of the product prices for the real ones go up and it's caused such issues. I know that they're trying to do some things with tariffs, which is a good thing because at least it's trying to protect our products, but it's been going for over 20 years as far as I know, probably longer than that, but that's about the time I got into that part of the industry. Back in 1999, I'm sitting at Fox doing their worldwide investigations and legal calls me up and says, hey, go look at this website, News Corps, plural, not News Corps, News Corps, plural.com. Exact copy of our corporate website, exact links, everything, except when you clicked on links to go contact somebody, I traced it back to a pharmaceutical company in China owned by uh, and run by the Chinese military. This is 1999. I, I don't think we called it phishing back then, but that was really what was going on. So this is something we need to get ahead of and ca- we'll catch up to really. So let's talk about some cyber hygiene. Let's talk about what people can do to, to slow this down and stop it. I'm glad you bring that up because it really is starting with the human aspect. If you can teach people what you said, cyber hygiene, 
and teach them the little tweaks that can protect themselves from making one mistake, that can stop a huge infiltration through an entire network. So it's really amazing. There are so many simple things that you can do. You need to be aware of where you're going online. And it sounds like such a simple thing, but it is so true. When you're typing in a domain, you type in an address really quick and you hit enter and you end up on the wrong page. I always use the example whitehouse.gov would be the normal White House page you would go to if you wanted to look at the White House, but you're not thinking about it. And all of a sudden you type in whitehouse.com. For those listening, that was a porn site. And here's the thing. Okay, so I've been told it's been shut down, which would be very good because we don't want our children making that mistake. That was one of my biggest concerns. But I want to take it a step further when you type something incorrectly in like that. Because what happens is a lot of people don't realize there are people out there that are actually creating thousands of domains that are one letter different or one extension different from the site that you're wanting to go to. So you could type in your cell phone company's domain because you want to go look at your phone bill and you type in something like verizonwireless.com and you hit enter and then you end up waiting, you know, when you get stuck on a page. Well, you know, sometimes you do get stuck on a page, right? It's not going anywhere after you add, enter in your login information. So you close it, you open up a new browser, you log in again, everything's fine. Well, it's not fine because what you didn't realize is you typed in the name of the company with an extra S at the end and you didn't know it. That page that you went to was created by a target somewhere. And this is a target site, which what's happened now is they didn't want your login information. They wanted you to go to that domain because now they have a direct infiltration into your system. It is that simple. If you physically type that in and go to that site, they could enter into your system from now on because you've invited them in. They could actually log in whenever they feel like it into your whole network, get into all the other computers. They could grab your files, they could grab your vendor list, your payroll, your financials, whatever you keep in that system. Or maybe they just wanna be entertaining and have a virus get set off in three months. You would never know it. These little mistakes can be detrimental on all levels. So knowing where you're going is one of the priority things that I tell everybody. You have to look at it. And I'm gonna joke about it because I tell people all the time in my trainings, do as I say, not as I do, because I am notorious for typing in something fast, hitting enter and being on the wrong page. Luckily, it is only my computer for my company and that's it. And I back up everything. So, you know, that's one advantage there, but there are a lot of other simple things that you can do. Know what you're clicking on. For example, you can hover over any link and somewhere on your monitor, it's going to tell you where you're going. It'll give you the full link. So when you're looking at something, maybe you're even on a legitimate site, but they have a resources page. When you hover over one of those links, make sure you look at where you're going first so you know it looks to be a safe site before you do that. Phishing attacks nowadays are so sophisticated, I have almost been fooled once or twice, and I'm pretty sophisticated as a user. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's funny because everybody knows what phishing is. And so one of the things that I explain, and I got to tell you, I've almost been tricked so many times as well. It's extraordinary how good these have gotten. And so I always tell people, it doesn't make you stupid if you accidentally clicked on something, but it's unfortunate because you can have a problem. What it is, is they're very good at feeding off of that human side of you. So you really need to take it slow and look at what you're doing. I tell everybody, just don't click. 
But there's one thing that you really need to know about in the phishing aspect is using your email in plain text instead of using HTML. This is another thing that you can do to keep yourself from having an issue. Because what happens is all it takes is receiving an email with a little logo in it. If you open up that email, it could have some malicious information attached to that logo. All you had to do was open the email and you're done. It wasn't that you had to go click on something. It wasn't that you had to enter information in and, and reply. All you have to do is open up an email that's an HTML, which means it displays images. So if you can see a colored font, if you can see the pretty background stationary, if you can see logos, you're viewing it in HTML. And trust me when I tell you, plain text emails and HTML emails, if they're target emails, can look just like plain text. So you need to be sure where it says, it looks all plain text, but then it says, click here to view document. Well, if you read that like that, that means that you're not seeing where you're going. Hover over that link. You need to set up your email in plain text. The other aspect about phishing, just don't click. I tell everybody this, don't click on anything in an email or even your text messages. Don't click, open up your browser, do a search in there, you know, log into your Wells Fargo account there or your utility account there. If there's something that they need to tell you about, it's going to be in the inbox there. If there's a concern, they're going to have information. And even if it's a legitimate email, don't click. Clicking can be the death of your system because that is one of the main places where it's going to install ransomware. And if you make a simple mistake like clicking on something, you could get that little image that pops up and it says your files have been encrypted. You cannot access these unless you go to this site and then pay this much in Bitcoin. And I tell you what, this can be a bad thing. If this ever happens to you, one of the things you need to do is just step away from your computer, get your IT people, get your web people, get your supervisor. Don't turn anything off. Don't touch anything. Just step away and leave it freestanding as it is because you're going to need help. The thing that I do, so I never have to worry if I do make that mistake because we all can. Back up everything. I have a freestanding hard drive that's a two terabyte hard drive. I turn off my internet. I clean up my computer with my malware bytes and my spy bot search and destroy, clean up everything, clean the cache, plug in my hard drive, back up all my files. When it's all done, I unplug it. It is not Bluetooth sensitive, so it cannot access Wi-Fi. It's freestanding. Turn my internet back on, I'm good to go. That way, if I ever do make that mistake, I don't have to worry because I've still got my files, so I can just ignore them. That's some of the main things. And like I said, with the SMS messages, text messages, you might get something that looks real. Your Apple account ID is about to expire. Your Verizon wireless account has been locked. Don't click. Go log in independently. So that's some of the main phishing aspects that I've seen in my history. So when you say intellectual property, the average person is going to listen to this and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm, you know, I don't own a business. I'm just a worker bee. Uh, what are they going to steal from me? And I would tell them, you are your intellectual property. Your identity theft is the theft of your intellectual property, the theft of your life, your ability to function in the world without interference. So emphasize to people why the theft of intellectual property is not really specifically a commercial attack vector. 
Oh, you're absolutely correct. And I've heard that same line too. Somebody says, well, no, I'm just, this is just my personal phone. This is just my personal computer. It doesn't matter, but you're absolutely right. I like the way you describe that. We are our own intellectual property. Everything about us should remain confidential. Any little piece of information that they can get from just your freestanding laptop or your cell phone is a piece of information that can be used against you. And then you start getting into the aspect of vishing and they're going to start stealing your information out of your banks. You know, your social security number, your dates of birth, all of these little pieces of information can be detrimental. Or if you're someone that's just a small one person business, but you feel like, you know, no, there's nothing to be stolen. Well, that's not true. Because any item of information, whether it has to do with the type of work you're doing or something you've done uh, for a client or even your billing or even your invoicing, all of these little pieces also are part of your intellectual property. So the fact that you are, would not protect yourself on that aspect and secure your system and your identity and your activity is a priority because every person is a useful tool for the bad guy. So they can utilize every single person, not just the businesses. Some of the things additionally that you need to be doing for your system is making sure that you're running things like malware bytes and SpyBot search and destroy. These things you can install for free. I run them every day. I clean my system. So I'm not leaving vulnerabilities in my computer because what can happen is you could be doing searches all day long on Google and Bing. Well, if you're not realizing it, they're collecting your information and saving it and tracking you and watching where you're going. And if you hit the wrong thing, there may be data mining in your system so they can later approach you on a level that might actually look real, like you were looking on a certain website for different computers to purchase a new one, they'll know you've been doing this. So securing that information by cleaning out the vulnerabilities is a priority. The other thing that you need to be doing is using a VPN. Virtual private networks will secure you even more. I recommend using a paid version. There are lots of them out there. NordVPN is one of the most popular. There are lots of other ones that you can look into. Just do a search and look for the best VPNs for 2020 if you're not using them. But these VPNs, when you log in and you turn that on, you can put yourself anywhere in the country or in the world for that matter. They have country, you can log into any country also helps you with your searches if you're looking for something in an area. But what this does is it protects you from those sites you visited, from them knowing it's you. So you're securing yourself behind the VPN and not giving up your information. So I highly recommend that along with a secure browser. If you can use a secure browser, and there's free one out there that I love that I've tested over and over again, and I found that it doesn't leave any malicious information on my system. I've been using the new private window from Firefox. And when I'm in there and I'm behind my VPN, I'm pretty darn secure. And I, some of my work takes me to nefarious sites. And even with those nefarious sites, it doesn't leave any tracking on my computer. They don't know where I'm coming from. And when I close that browser, it's gone. So now you're protecting your identity, your intellectual property, all of your information, just from utilizing a secure browser and a VPN. These little tweaks will change everything for you and keep you a lot more secure.
I, I agree. I use both of those things, VPN and Firefox, and it really has cut down on the junk I get in my spam. And really, when the spam starts going away, you know you're being successful. Let's talk about passwords. We really do need to bring that up because people need to be changing their passwords regularly. I mean, if you need one, you can get a password manager, but those passwords need to get changed. That's another vulnerability. And there are emails out there you might get that are threatening you because to extort you out of money because they had a real password and your name. And we won't go into the details of these extortion emails, but you'll think that they actually did access your site or your information or superimposed your head on some you know film that's awful and then try and extort you that's why you need to change your passwords because those passwords come from breaches and it's all old information hopefully but change those regularly so you know if you get those extorting emails you know that it's an old password tell me how phones are used in social engineering scams the social engineering piece can happen over the phone you need to be very careful because they're so good at just getting you on the phone and actually making it out like they've given you all your information, but we just need to verify this one piece. Never verify anything on the phone. You have no idea who you're talking to. The perfect example, I had this number calling me constantly. It was an 800 number and it kept calling me back to back for five minutes. Then they stopped. Another five minutes later, they kept calling. I never answered the phone. I looked up the number and it was actually the fraud department of my mortgage company. I was going through a refi at the time. I called them later, asked them if there was a problem with my account and they explained to me, we would never call from our 800 number if there was any kind of fraudulent activity. We will call from a local number. So that was the perfect example. They made it look like it was actually my mortgage company. So don't ever verify anything over the phone. Don't verify anything in an email. Don't verify anything on your social networks and be very, very aware of what you're offering up on your social networks. Because Chuck, you brought it up. You know, those little pieces. You know, what's the name of your dog? Oh, send me a picture. Oh, yeah, you know, what, didn't you have a birthday recently? Simple things that make it sound like they know you. Be very careful and have that radar up because it's all human intel and they will use it against you. Sandra Stibbards, CamelotInvestigations.com. She walks a walk and talks a talk. Excellent advice, excellent information. Sandra, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks, Chuck. Dr. Glenn Kitteringham, CPP, heads Kitteringham Security Group, Inc., and has taught many courses for the University of Calgary, the International Foundation for Protection Officers, and Justice Institute of British Columbia. He has authored or co-authored more than 250 articles, books, and papers on security and life safety. Mr. Glenn, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Today's topic is developing a training guard program. You know, there's a lot of data on this, but if I was going to ask you, Glenn, out of all that data, all that knowledge you know, if you boil this down to one issue, what do you think that would be with guard training? What is the one thing we could focus on that would improve all the other aspects of a program? Uh, I believe that the main issue is that there are not enough properly qualified trainers who are training security personnel and that there are very few, very few standards around trainers. And the contradiction for me is why so many trainers have no formal training and it's a contradiction to me. I want to back this up for a second and say this isn't just an issue within security or law enforcement. Uh, universities are hiring a lot of 
uh, adjunct instructors and they are hiring them because they're subject matter experts in their field of expertise. And so I was hired by the University of Calgary uh, to teach in the security management program, but there was no, and, and the minimum education requirement I needed for that was a master's, but there was no expectation that I needed to have any adult learning courses at all. And, and so even academic institutions are guilty of the exact same thing, which is they hire for subject matter expertise. Now, unless your subject matter expertise is adult learning, um, you're not learning that content. And, and so they occasionally provide, you know, a Saturday morning session or an online session on, on you know, adult learning concepts, but everybody's guilty of it. And I also think that part of it is there's this expectation that if you take a trained trainer course on, let's say, training the trainer on um, self-defense or uh, conflict de-escalation, that somehow you're also like, you know, that that's good enough for you to learn on how to train other people. And yes, on the face value, it, it is training you how to train other people. But again, this focuses on the on the content, uh, you know, the, the subject, the content of the subject, if that makes sense, or the subject of the content, but it's not focusing on how people learn and different learning, uh, you know, different learning expectations and transfer learning and different learning theories and how to put content together and how to put a marking rubric together and how to, you know, put a lesson plan together. Like that stuff's not covered. And uh, um, I don't know if they just assume that people know how to do that. Tell me some of the things that if I was properly trained to train adults in, in adult content learning, tell me some things I would have, some skills I would have that, that would help improve the security guard training industry. You would probably be exposed to what some of the pros and cons of training are. You would also become familiar that there is good training and bad training, that there's formal training and informal training that there's active learning and passive learning, uh, that people learn differently. There are, um, you know, experiential learners, there's audio learners, there's video, uh, you know, um, there's a variety of ways in which people learn content. And, and, and because of that, there's a variety of delivery methods uh, you would learn about. So how do you ensure the consistency of content? And so that means the development of a marking rubric. That means the development of a lesson plan. That means putting a course plan together, maybe making a course map. And those are all the concepts that you would, that a, that an individual should be exposed to in, in adult learning courses. You know, even, uh, you know, there are a variety of, there, there's a, there's, there's a whole um, bunch of different, uh, adult learning theories, you know, like theories about how people actually learn. Um, there is uh, assessment tools out there to assess the quality of your training program and the assess the quality of the instructor. And, and that all takes critical self, one, it takes self-awareness and it takes critical self-assessment, self-analysis. Am, am I actually doing the job that I'm doing? You know, um, you would learn that, you know, that you could consider pre-course surveys and post-course surveys. And, and these are all tools that are designed to assist the instructor in, in fine-tuning their content and to ensure consistency. Because, 
how do you know that what you're training today or that what you trained somebody on 10 years ago is the same content you're training them on now? Um, or, or is it the same content and, and should it have been updated? And, you know, are you incorporating the latest teaching methods into, into your delivery of your content? And, and all this is the stuff, all this content is material that somebody would be exposed to in taking some adult learning courses. One of my favorite things I read when I was a boy was this. Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I learn. Benjamin Franklin. I think that's the crux of right. education. And to your point, you see so many people doing PowerPoints, especially during some of the, the security uh, conventions we have, right? They're literally reading the slide back to the audience. Well, guess what? I'm in the audience. I can read, pal. I know what the slide says. I know what your line says. Tell me what the concept is behind that. So this right. is to your point. If they don't have that kind of training, we're not really even transferring knowledge to our students. We're just regurgitating. Yeah. So you know, your quote from Benjamin Franklin, as far as I'm concerned, explains active learning in a single sentence. That is active learning. It is engaging the student and getting them to practice the skills and to reflect upon it. And, to, and, and, and so they're not taking a passive learning environment where they're simply having somebody read. And I agree with you. When I find myself reading off a PowerPoint slide, like I, I personally become embarrassed. There's a variety of evaluation methods out there on you know, evaluating program effectiveness. And there's one in particular that I'm fond of, which is Kirkpatrick's four-step methodology. And Kirkpatrick's, is, they've got their pros and cons, just like every other methodology out there. But there's a, it's a four-step process. And what it does is it asks four questions. One, is the student enjoying themselves? Two, did the student learn the content? Three, did it actually change the, did it have the intended outcome that it changed the behavior or it brought the student, like it taught them how to do something. So it, it brought about the intended outcome. And then four, did the organization paying for the training get their money's worth? Those four principles are, are also principles that I have worked into my, into my content. And I do post-course surveys all the time. I, I, every course I teach, I do a post-course survey. And, in, in, you know, some courses I'm doing pre-course surveys as well. I'm, I'm well aware of them. And uh, it, it's all about constant improvement. How can I... How can I make this a more positive experience for the student? And, and are they walking away with something that they can actually use? What would you recommend in the security industry that we could do to, to change this up a little bit and go from, hey, uh, here's a training memo, sign here, you're trained, or uh, here's a PowerPoint, and here's your guard card? Because that's kind of where we are right now with the business. How do we do that? Uh, well, one thing that I think is really lacking in the security industry is um, one, like we do know generally speaking what security officers do and the various positions is because this is not just about security officers, but I think the more importantly, what is really missing is uh, job task complexity. Uh, there's, as far as I can tell, there's been no research into this area. And I think that there needs to be some critical research undertaking to really figure out how complex some of these tasks are and you know i mean it's one thing to say well you're you know you're hired as a security officer and to go guard a construction site you know a hole in the ground basically 
It's another thing if you're doing conflict de-escalation or writing a report or, you know, sitting in a control room with $10 million worth of computer equipment and you're supposed to know how all that stuff operates. And I think there is a disconnect between what the expectations of the, of what the guard or the officer is expected to do and the training and the salary they're not in alignment with the expectations of the position and i think that you know if um job task complexity can be factored into this i think that would go a long way in in giving the like demanding so to speak the training that these these security people require and to help them be successful. Does, does that answer your question? It does, and it highlights something that is usually not spoken about in our industry. It's a complex industry, isn't it? You really hit it on the head there with, oh. that, with that word. And we actually treat it as if it's not. Uh, here's your eight hours of guard training that you do with an open book where you do it online and you get a guard card. You're licensed in eight hours. And now let's put you on a post and uh, call me if the, if the building catches on fire or if there's a burglary. And that's kind of it. But it's so much more complex yeah. than that. So if we did treat it more complex, we would we would act more complex in our training, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's um, the, the, the task analysis and the, you know, just, well, you know, this, this goes back to the foundation for doing training, which I'm sure you're aware of. Whenever you're developing a training program, you always start at the end, which is as a result of the training, I want the, you know, the student to be able to do X, Y, or Z. But I, like, I, I don't think that's being done because in order to accomplish X, Y, or Z, that might mean, you know, write a complex report incorporating uh, using good, you know, written and verbal communication skills, having an understanding of civil or criminal law. Uh, being able to put a proper report together, you know, understanding grammar, syntax, spelling, um, understanding how to do a basic investigation. I, you know, like you, when you're developing a training program around that, you have to think about that stuff. Like the outcome is a well-written report, but you have to ask yourself the question, well, what knowledge and skills does an individual, what must they possess in order to be able to do that? or safely de-escalate a situation. That means you have to have high levels of emotional intelligence. You have to have confidence. You have to have good communication skills. You have to have physical self, you should have some physical self-defense training. You should have you know, verbal de-escalation training. Um, those are all foundational uh, pieces of knowledge for lack of a better term. It's just not addressed and Again, I think we're we're setting we're setting so many people up for failure because we're not we're not truly thinking this process through of well what does that person need to have in order to be successful? You said something I think was very insightful. Our first line on our training slide should be in the end the student shall demonstrate the ability to do this. And that's a yep. great objective, but you need all those things before it. I think what we do in the business is we feel that demonstrating what the final product looks like is enough. I'm going to show you a perfectly written report and tell you how you got there with it, but I'm not going to require you to get there. I think we feel that just 
being demonstrative is enough in training. I, I don't know if I phrased that right, but well, does that make sense? Absolutely. That's passive learning, right? I mean, the, the goal, you know, passive learning versus active learning is I'm going to show passive learning is I'm going to show you a well-written report. Now do it that way right. versus active learning, which is, okay, let's write some reports. Let's critique them. Let's tear them down. Let's, you know, let's, 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 let's give you lots of practice and uh, let's give you the opportunity to do this over and over and over and give you proper feedback. And okay. And I'm the first to admit, it's really easy for me to say this. I recognize that that is an expensive proposition. The alternative is we're all pretending to provide security. So we're preventing, you know, we're, we're pretending to, to, to prepare guards for work in the industry. We're not putting any effort into training or any, or any money. We're not paying them appropriately. And then surprise, surprise, when the guard doesn't write a report, then we're angry. Why would we be angry? They're doing exactly what we asked them to do, which is nothing. So well, that's, um, that's, a, that's an excellent point, and it's very honest. We can't go around defining our industry as working perfectly because why would we have to solve anything? Why would we have to change anything if we define everything as working properly? So excellent points, Glenn. Thank you. Tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. Benjamin Franklin, no truer words have ever been spoken except perhaps by Mr. Glenn Kitteringham, CPP. Mr. Glenn, thanks for coming on the show. Very insightful. I think people are going to walk away from here saying, wow, there's a light bulb over my head. I, I hadn't thought about that before. So you have obtained yeah. your objective of teaching people something and having them retain it. Very Thank good you. job, my friend. Very good job. Thanks for coming on Security Management Thank Highlights. You.